It's another day in your life. I know this because I'm with you for every detailed nuance you choose to acknowledge or ignore. I'm not really anyone that's special or important. I'm a bit boring myself, and that being said, we'll focus on you for the duration of this podcast. If you ever wondered what happens after you die, why you can't let go of your first love, why you're always choosing people who hurt you or maybe fearful you'll miss the best part of your life among the details of routine, well, that's where I come in. See, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life because you're already living it. I'm here to narrate the details of what you're doing so when you wake up or when you fall asleep, you'll know the day you lived, well, it matters. Welcome to Narratives. The way the sunlight falls through the vertical blinds across the breakfast nook. The shadows appear to glimmer as the breeze pushes them from side to side. Across the small table where you've spent the last five years eating alone, you watch the same shadows reach for your fingertips wrapped around your coffee mug. The little chip at the top, from where John dropped it 12 years ago when he was doing dishes after one of the fights you had had, scrapes across your index finger. You tap the mug and listen to the ding that comes from the rim. Nothing is warm anymore. The coffee steam wafts upwards in tendrils of white that disappear like lonely phantoms into the dim hues of the kitchen. Yet, you feel nothing across your skin. The Xanax must be kicking in. It takes longer to kick in, but when it does, that feeling of disconnectedness invades. No, not invades. Envelops. Yeah, the disconnectedness envelops you and takes you out to sea among the rolling tides of some vacant life. A grackle lands on the wooden fence and you wonder what it must be like to fly. The grackle looks through the vertical blinds at you, tilts its head as if to wonder what it must be like to drug oneself into another plane of existence. It flies off in a muted swish of iridescent black and blues. The sun falls upon your skin, the back of your hand, lit up, sunlight illuminated gold from the stars, shows the ridges, the lines, the creases, the wrinkles of your ever-present and creeping age. You take a breath and look away from your skin. Instead of looking towards the West Elm wallpaper that adorns your kitchen walls, you choose to look out into the blue shadows of the backyard. The second wave of Xanax washes into your blood. You shut your eyes without knowing it. Open them. Drift backwards through time. You hear your daughter laughing upstairs and John, still alive, is asking her why she's so silly. You imagine you'd smile at this, but nothing registers on your numb face. Her small footsteps rush down the stairs and they tap across the kitchen tile. John, still alive, comes after her and opens the pantry door like he did every morning when he was still alive. Blink. She's 15 and slams the door. You shudder with the resonation settling into the walls. 
John stands up across the dinner table and lets out a sigh before walking up the stairs in that slow, distinct way he did back then, when he was still alive. The top of the stairs creak with his weight, and he knocks on the door, explaining to your daughter why you didn't mean what you had said. His voice is low, but compassionate, and you hate him for it. You hate the way he's always been able to say exactly what she needs to hear. The door opens. He stands in the doorway, conversing with the blonde-headed mystery you gave birth to. A moment later, the two are laughing, as if sharing an inside joke, and you boil with envy and rage. Blink. John runs a hand through his hair as he looks at you from the living room while contemplating by the coffee table. He tells you that he can't do it anymore and that he's going to take you up on your offer. He admits that he hasn't been happy in years and knows you're miserable too. You don't say much to him because of the relief spilling into your soul. Your heart, it beats with a low pressure lob. The medication is erasing that high blood pressure thud one useless beat at a time. John gives you a sad nod and he is the same boyish man that you had fallen in love with years ago. The naive and ever calm, ever patient, ever understanding man that loved you with grace and profound dignity. The man, the sweet man, that welcomed you into his home, into his life, into his newfound career, and took care of you despite your true nature. Homeless, stubborn, filthy fucking escort you were. He took you in and beheld in you the woman he so desperately wanted you to become. That was John's gift back then, when he was still alive. He always saw the potential in others. Then you had a child, a daughter, and her potential took over. The fear of her falling into your disappointing ways overwhelmed you, didn't it? And that's when you found yourself turning against her. You sip your coffee absently. The sting of the heat is wasted on you. Blink. You remember the last night John was alive. He gave you that understanding nod, went for a drive, and never came back. Twelve hours later, Chicago PD was at your door, telling you the news that would paint you with shame and guilt. John's wake was short. You buried him. She hated you. She hates you. The silence that followed John's death clung heavy to the walls. It drenched your listless nights when your daughter would come home and quietly slip into her room without acknowledging you. The only way you knew she was still living in the same house was the occasional discovery of a plate or bowl in the sink. Sometimes her door would be left open, and you would catch the scent of her perfume in the air moments after she had disappeared out of the house and into the city. She did her best to avoid you, and was masterful to a fault. You spent the nights crying, sobbing on the floor of your bedroom. A year later, it was her bedroom. A year after that, it was the kitchen. 
than the doctor's appointments and therapy and drugs and drugs and drugs. And now you don't cry anymore. You don't feel anymore. Because you live in this haze of a present day. You would cry if you hadn't forgotten how to do it. The guilt came later and didn't leave. When John died, it was a way to avoid the conflict of divorce. Forego the drawn-out explanations to mutual friends when they asked where John was, or why you were moving out, or what happened in the marriage, how your daughter would take the news. Being a widow from a senseless act of violence is much easier than a divorcee. The self-hatred, the destruction that rose up from it all was inevitable. Every time you looked in the mirror, you saw yourself as a fucking scum you believed yourself to be. John never loved you. He loved the potential in you. Your daughter never loved you. She only tolerated you for the sake of her father. The two of them, they were the real family. You, you were the outsider looking in from the street. Like you always were. Like you'll always be. Take another pill. The sunlight radiates its beam against your cheek, not knowing the sheer pointlessness of it all. But thanks for the effort. Blink. The grackle returns and watches you fade away. A mix of nausea and uncontrolled emotions take hold of you for the first time. It's been three days. Three days since you blacked out on the kitchen floor and stopped taking the meds. You blink away the remnants of the last bizarre, disconnected, crying outbursts in your bathroom. The empty, oversized tub cradles you as you look up through the small, horizontal slit between closed blinds. Mid-morning sunlight greets your newfound sobriety with a growing warmth upon your skin. Three days and nights of withdrawal saw you emerge on the other side of sickness. The tears of uncontrolled laughter, paranoia, sadness, horrendous joy, sadness again, all of it tore through your brain as your neurotransmitters desperately tried to remedy themselves of the shortage of drugs. You fell asleep in the empty tub a few hours ago, after crying for no discernible reason. Then, you woke with the most calm you felt in years. You look into the mirror with a newfound clarity. The lines across your face don't seem as bad as you thought they were. You lean closer to look at the wrinkles in your forehead. Your light blue eyes stare back at you. You blink and there are no flashbacks. Instead, only your reflection, not remotely as monstrous as you had remembered it to be. Another breath of air moves your heart to beat and you feel it in your chest. Your hands, your steady hands, reach down and cup the water running from the faucet. Your eyes shut 
black and red hues of color take over, and the water is invigorating. You open your eyes and realize you don't want to die anymore. The two of you took turns confessing to one another. Two would-be strangers swept up in a strange October afternoon outside of the Rosemont Outlet Mall. Leo was his name. A slender-framed young man, 22 years old and desperate with life. You caught him fighting tears behind the cash register at Subway and two hours later, life had changed for the both of you. His life was a mixture of unresolved abandonment and a stark portrait of potential future outcomes, courtesy of his despondent father and an absent mother. You shared a cigarette with the kid on the promenade bench. Somewhere between your last few years of Xanax dependencies, a strange breakdown, three days of detox in the first half of the day, you found yourself confessing the most vulnerable parts of your past to him. He was kind and paid you the attention and care that had been missing for the last few years. He didn't judge, nor did he scoff. He merely listened and offered up his naivety as a means of condolence. It was enough for you, as if you deserved anything more in this life. Leo, whose mother had left his life before he turned six years old, sat next to you this afternoon. The boy who grew up scared of everything, frightened of school, tormented by anxiety, and bullied throughout most of his life, sat next to you this afternoon. Leo, whose alcoholic father never hurt him, but never held him. The father that taught him nothing in life but the lessons of silence and regret. Leo, who left home at 17 and whose father started calling him every day two years ago after he sobered up sat next to you today and confessed he was painfully alone and scared and you admitted the same to him and smoked his cigarettes. You take a drag from the first cigarette of the new pack you bought on your way home and look out over your backyard as the crickets chirp. The freshly cut grass from the Stevens yard down the street merges with the aroma of Lake Michigan blowing in from the north. The stars above, barely visible beyond the light of the suburbs, twinkle and hang endless in ways that you can't recall ever seeing before. And in this vast array of clarity, the words of Leo continue to replay in your mind. You should call your daughter. You look at your phone. It's two in the morning. You have Melinda's number from her W-2 that was sent to you by accident last year. That's how you learned she worked at the CTA station near East Rogers Park. You saved the number into your phone, then popped a pill to take the edge off the anxiety you experienced imagining what you'd say if you ever called her. The tight-lipped mother you were, lost to bouts of self-hatred, doubt, and fear, 
would toil endless with ways of fucking up the one shot you had in convincing your daughter you weren't a waste of her time. Now, with four days of sobriety behind you, the world felt less ominous and merely open. The truth you had seen in the mirror this morning. A woman afraid of loving anyone, especially herself. In the solitude of morning sunlight and a spotless vanity mirror, you realized you deserved the compassion, love, and kindness afforded to you by your family, and most importantly, yourself. So you promised to be kind to yourself and to anyone who needed to confess their pain. It's how you met Leo. You check your phone again. It's 2.02 a.m. You tap Melinda's name without any fear. Only love. It rings and rings and rings. And right before you hang up, she answers. Hilda was kind, was written and performed by Gabriel N. Elizondo. Music and effects provided by Epidemic Sound. Narratives with Gabriel N. Elizondo is a Crown and Coil production. All written content and performances are exclusive properties of Crown and Coil Productions. For additional content, a full list of featured songs in this episode, and to connect, please visit www.gabrielnelizondo.com or click the link in the show notes. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating and review. It really does help. And thank you for being a part of our story.